You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Well, good morning and welcome again to our gathering here at City Light South. If we haven't met, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the elders here. It is good to be uh, together. Um, we are picking up basically where we left off. Um, we're skipping over kind of one chapter, chapter 36. Um, it's, a, it's a big, long genealogy of Esau. It's, it's good, lots of names. God is working through the, the, the families of even the people that aren't in, the, in, in Abraham's line of blessing. He is working. Um, but we're going to start in chapter 37 today. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 37. Um, I'm really eager to dive back into this. This is going to be for the next nine weeks. We're following the story of essentially one man, uh, a guy called Joseph. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really good story. I'm sure if you've been around the church, you've probably heard um, some, some Bible stories, some kids' lessons. You've seen the Prince of Egypt. You know a little bit. Hopefully, uh, we, as we actually get back into the text and, and say, what does the text actually say? Maybe it is what we think. It says maybe there's some stuff we missed, some new stuff. I hope this will be really um, enriching for all of us today. Uh, let me just start, though, with a summary of where we've come so far in the book of Genesis. We started at beginning, I think it was the beginning of last year, about March last year, I think. We started Genesis with chapter 1, and we see this picture of God, God who is perfect and holy and complete in himself, but he wants to put his full glory on display. He wants to share his glory with others. And so he creates a universe, our universe, full of life. And he creates on the final day of creation, male and female, man and woman, in his own image, to rule and reign over everything that he has made. But then, of course, we get to chapter 3, and something goes terribly wrong. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they listen to a deceiver. They listen to a serpent who says, you, my friends, can be happy without God. God does not know how to make you happy. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. And so they believe the lie. They believe the serpent. They take matters into their own hands. They disobey God. And it says in the text that their eyes were opened. They were open to what it's really like to do things without God, to live without God. And the consequences of that mistake, of that sin, of that original sin, were death and sorrow and sadness. All, everything that's wrong in the world came in in that moment. That story sets the scene for the rest of human history right down to today. All humanity from that point on is divided into two camps. You have... God's people, who are called in Genesis 3 the seed or the offspring of the woman. And then you have the offspring or the seed of the serpent. So you have team Eve on one hand, and you have team serpent. Now, team Eve, those are the, those are the people who, by faith in God, the creator, enter into covenant relationship with him and are saved. And team serpent are those who by faith in themselves attempt to save themselves and are cut off from covenant relationship with God. And every person since Adam and Eve is born into this team, is born into Team Serpent, but can be saved and adopted and brought in to Team Eve. In Genesis 12, God appears 
to one man, a man called Abram, who was just out living his life, living his best life. He was not part of Team Eve in any way, but God had chosen him before he was even born. He chose him to be the father of a great nation, even though he didn't have any kids at age 75. But since nothing is impossible for God, Abram, whose name later became Abraham, had a son, Isaac, who had a son called Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons by four different wives. These 12 sons are the future of God's people. These are the, the, the sons through whom all the other nations will be blessed. So without knowing anything else, you'd expect these sons to be upstanding, righteous, God-fearing, respectable men. They were not. If you remember the deceitfulness of Jacob, their father, his foolishness, his sin, and how God had to lead him on a lifelong journey to unlearn the ways of Team Serpent and learn the ways of Team Eve, it shouldn't surprise us then that his sons had very similar problems in their lives. Jacob's journey was tough on Jacob. He, you know, endured years of being cheated by his own flesh and blood. He feared for his life when his own brother wanted to kill him. Jacob himself was never violent. His sons, on the other hand, not so much. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 34, there was a story where um, one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, was sexually assaulted. Her, her brothers, Simeon and Levi, devised a plan not only to have her rapist killed, but then all the men in the town along with him. These were the second and third-born sons. They were violent men. Well, what about the first-born son, Reuben? End of chapter 35, Reuben himself commits adultery with one of his father's wives, the firstborn. We're about to see in this chapter, the chapter we're going to look at today, chapter 37, that the rest of the sons weren't much better either, except for one. Except for one. One of the 12 sons is going to become the hero of the family. He's going to become the hero and the rescuer of God's people. That son, a man called Joseph, is the main character for the rest of the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. Joseph gets more airtime, more attention in, in terms of just word count than Abraham. He gets more than Isaac. He gets more than Jacob. Why? Why? Well, perhaps, I, we don't have a definite answer to that question, but perhaps his life, Joseph's life, more than any other life in the book of Genesis, shouts to us um, uh, uh, what it looks like to live a, a, a blessed life of long, faithful, difficult obedience to God. In this opening chapter, uh, chapter 37, Moses, who's the narrator of Genesis, he's going to lay down this massive contrast between the hero, Joseph, and the rest of his family. And like, you know, I've heard some commentators use the word dysfunctional to describe this family. I think that's an understatement. That's not, that doesn't do it justice. There's so much drama, so much deceit, so much despicable behavior uh, on the part of Joseph's brothers in particular that for anything good to come out of this whole mess, we know that God has to be up to something. God has to do it. What God is up to in this family 
in this story is something that affects not only this family, but affects everyone in this room. Everybody. So we're going to go on a journey this morning. We're going to meet the future prince of Egypt. And if it goes well, we're going to, we're going to see a picture of the king of kings himself. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll just walk through the text um, bit by bit this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come now and just listen and, and learn and, and understand you would open our ears and eyes to receive your truth humbly, that we might be encouraged, that we might be changed, that you might be glorified in us. Make us more like Jesus as we just meditate on your word this morning together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So here's the contrast I'm just going to lay out as a, as a way, a bit of a, a structure for us this morning. Joseph on the one hand, who we're going to meet in the kind of the first half of the chapter. Joseph shows us that if God chooses a, a man or a woman, if God chooses a person, it is possible to live a life of long, faithful obedience. On the other hand, we're going to see with the brothers, we're going to see with the brothers that if God has not chosen, if God has not chosen a person apart from God, anyone, can descend into the pit of cruelty. So that's kind of where we're going. So let's look at, jo- let's look at Joseph's life. I'm going to read um, just the text in sections. I'm starting in verse 1. So Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. All right, so here's the setting. The covenant family is back in Canaan. They've left Shechem, which they were they never should have been, and there was all sorts of drama, but now they're back in Canaan, which is where they're meant to be. And in verse 2, we read this phrase, these are the family records of Jacob. Now, if you've been tracking with us through Genesis, you know whenever we get to that little phrase, these are the family records of, it's kind of like a chapter break, or a, a, it's a new section. There's a new story about to unfold. And you also might remember that when it says these are the family records of Jacob, the story that's about to unfold is not going to be about Jacob, but it's going to be about one of his offspring. In this case, it's going to be the story of Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, uh, Rachel. Uh, he's the second youngest son, um, the, the, the firstborn of Rachel. But here he's just a teenager. He's 17. He's probably like an apprentice shepherd of some kind uh, to his brother. He has not done anything significant yet. And yet then in the end of verse 2, we read that he's out there giving a bad report to dad about his older brothers, the sons of his two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, question. Was Joseph being a brat? Was he just dobbing him in, trying to like get in good with his dad? The text doesn't really tell us. 
Some people would like to read that in and try to say, you know, try to imply that Joseph, by doing this and later on by telling his brothers the dreams that he had, that Joseph kind of almost deserved what he got in the end. I, I don't think the text does, like, lets us do that. Uh, Joseph is being painted out here not as a, as a dubber and a troublemaker. He's painted as a, a, a young man who is loyal to his dad. A young man who cares about his father's honor and reputation. That's why he brings this bad report um, about his brothers. In verses 3 and 4, we see why Joseph might have been so loyal. His dad favored him. His dad favored him. He says he loved him more than all of his brothers because Jacob was, he was born when Jacob was already old. Right about when his life was about to turn around, when he was leaving his uncle Laban who had cheated him. And he gives him this robe as a, as a, as a symbol of his love and affection. Um, now, you might have wondered, why does it say long sleeve robe? Where's the, where's the coat of many colors? This is the same, same coat. Um, was it colorful? We don't know that phrase, the coat of many colors. You'd find it in the King James Version. It's probably not the best translation. Um, we don't know what color it is. We do know it probably had long sleeves. And the significance of those long sleeves is that that coat was a symbol that Joseph was not meant for light to be out in the field with the sheep. He was meant to be ruling. It was a sign of rulership. Only kings and, and wealthy people wore coats with long sleeves in those days. Now, Jacob's love for him, you see, isn't just sentimental. It's not just, you know, ah, oh, you know, he looks, he looks a lot like me and he's just, you know, he's the apple of my eye. It's not, it's more than that. It's that he has chosen Joseph to receive, to be treated as the firstborn. Remember Reuben, the firstborn? He had sinned against his father gravely. And so he is now, Joseph has now replaced Reuben and replaced Simeon and Levi in the order uh, of, of honor and status in the family. He would get the double inheritance. He would get the blessing. And that's why we see his older brothers hated him so much. There was a real cost in this for them. He says they hated him so much they couldn't even look at him. I don't know if you remember all the way back to cha Genesis chapter 4. There's echoes of the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers Cain got to the point where, you know, because it appeared that God was favoring Abel, had chosen Abel for no reason uh, uh, over Cain, and Cain was livid, so livid that he ends up murdering his own brother. And similar thing is a potentially unfolding here. We just have to wait and see. All right, verse 5 says, Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. There we were binding sheaves of grain in the field. And suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse nine. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you've had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, see, if, only, if Joseph was only the favorite son, if he was only just, 
the, you know, the golden child. You know, we could chalk this up to one more example of Jacob being a bit foolish. Of him, you know, exhibiting this obvious favoritism that leads to jealousy and sibling rivalry. We've seen this before. It happened in his own, like, with his own brother. But this next section of the story, see, tells us something even more important. And we, may, we miss this sometimes. When we, we go, oh, man, Joseph, if you'd only kept your mouth shut, you wouldn't have gotten into all this trouble. Why did you have to go tell him the dreams? Well, he has two dreams. He has two dreams, and they essentially have the same meaning. There's the, the dream of the grain, and the brother's grain bows down in front of Joseph's grain, and then there's the dream of the, the sun, moon, and stars bowing down uh, to him. And he tells the family both times. And at both times, the family instantly knows what the dreams mean. They know that it's a sign that Joseph is going to rule. Uh, his brothers, of course, are ropeable. They're even, they just keep getting more and more furious. Uh, his dad rebukes him, tells him off, but he doesn't just dismiss the dream out of hand. He says he keeps it in mind. Why are there two dreams in the story? Have you ever wondered that? Why are there two dreams? Well, for one, Joseph actually had two different dreams, and they're both recorded. But it's more than that. There's more than that. You've got to turn with me. If you have a Bible, just flick forward a couple of chapters to chapter 41. Genesis 41, verse 32. Here, Joseph, Joseph is in this story, too. He's no longer in Canaan. He's down in Egypt in jail by this day. We'll get there. Uh, but here, he, um, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has two dreams. He has two dreams, but he has no idea what they mean. And so he's searching all over the place, asking for someone that can tell him the meaning of these dreams. And, and, and someone remembers, someone remembers that Joseph knows the meaning of dreams. So he summons Joseph and, and, and asks him. And Joseph says something very interesting to Pharaoh in verse 32 of chapter uh, 41. He says, since the dream was given twice... To Pharaoh, it means what? It means the matter has been determined by God and he will carry it out soon. So why did Joseph have two dreams? Because God, who is the giver of dreams all through Genesis, wanted Joseph to know, wanted Jacob to know, wanted all his brothers to know that this is going to happen. Joseph is going to rule. This is guaranteed. Now, his brothers hated him. They hated him because they hated what his dreams said. They hated what God had determined to do, that they were going to be ruled over by their younger brother. That's why they hated him. Joseph, see, is showing us, even if he's, like, as he learns this, as he experiences this in real time, he's showing to you and me what it looks like to follow God. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever see this picture of come follow God and everything will go according to plan. Everything will be easy. No one will oppose you. In fact, we see the opposite, don't we? So often it's come follow me and you will be hated. You will be opposed. It will be hard. But don't fear because I'm with you. See, that's the message of Scripture. Jesus said this. John chapter 15, verse 19. He's looking at his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross, and he says these words. He says, because you, disciples, are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. 
That's what Jesus said to his disciples right before he died. And that was Joseph's story. And it's your story and mine if you are called to follow Jesus. Verse 12. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. And then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and went to Shechem. A man found him there, wandering in the field, and asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they're pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, if I was Joseph at this stage, I would be feeling sorry for myself. Because, I mean, my brothers all hate me. And now I've got to make this long trip uh, to check up on them. And look where he's got to go. He's got to go to Shechem. Remember what happened to Shechem? That was a place where his sister was attacked. And then there was this, you know, the violent revenge that his brothers took. You know, oh, you're Jacob's kid? Whoa. Like, this is dangerous territory. This is not a friendly place that Joseph is being sent to. And then, I mean, his brothers aren't any better. They're probably worse in terms of the violent uh, intentions of their hearts. And, Jay, and here Joseph's got to go. But he goes. He goes in weakness. When his father sends, where his father sends, he goes. He doesn't have GPS. He has to ask for directions. He, he gets to Shechem and then finds out they've moved on to Dothan. If you, know, if you don't know the geography, that's 100 kilometers further away uh, that he's got to walk uh, to find them. This is a long hard road of obedience. And it's just the beginning of Joseph's journey. There's nothing in this for him. Nothing in this for him except obedience and potential danger. God didn't chose, choose Joseph because he was obedient, because he obeyed. Joseph obeyed. Joseph endured, and he did it with a, a happy attitude because God chose him. The way Joseph honors and obeys his dad right in this story is a sign that God has indeed chosen him. And, you know, we by nature are not obedient people. We're not consistent. We don't endure. We're faithless. And yet God, who is always faithful, is able to teach us the obedience that comes from, as Paul says in Romans, Faith, the obedience that comes from faith. And that's what Joseph has here. And, you know, it, it might take years. It might take your entire life to learn to obey in this way. But we have faith in the God who is always working. Time is immaterial to him. He is always working. And the work that he began in you will bring, will come to completion. All right. Verse 18. We kind of turn the spotlight from Joseph onto the brothers. We'll see what happens when they finally meet. Okay, verse 18, they saw him, Joseph, in the distance, and before he'd reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now let's, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Verse 18, Okay. The narrator turns the spotlight onto Joseph's brothers, and what do we see? A massive contrast. This is the opposite of obedience, the opposite of loyalty. 
the opposite of love. The Bible does not let these guys off the hook. They are not portrayed at all in a good light, thinking, oh, well, you know, after all, their dad did, you know, favor Joseph. I'd be mad too. No, the Bible doesn't let us. The Bible paints these guys as murderers in the line of Cain. There's no softening that. They're looking, by the end of this little section, for a wild animal to frame for this murder that they're about to commit. There's irony here. You know, let's blame a vicious animal. And yet, who are the vicious ones in this whole scene? Not the wild beasts roaming around, but human beings created in the image of God, about to do violence to an innocent teenager. They're the real animals. They're on the prowl, doing the work of Satan himself. He's always roaming around looking for people to devour. And why? What's their motive? He says, you know, if they figure, he says, then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. They figure, well, if Joseph's dead, he can't rule over us, right? His dreams must have been a lie. But see, Joseph's dreams, where did they come from? He had two of them. It came from God. It means you can kill him. You can do anything you like. It's still coming to pass one way or another. Verse 21, when Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long sleeve robe that he had on, and then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. Not only are Joseph's brothers acting like vicious animals here that devour the innocent, they are so desperate to save themselves from punishment and control the narrative. That's what Reuben is doing here. He, he don't think that he's like the good guy here. He, he doesn't have a lot of deep affection for Joseph because he, he could have stepped in. He could have actually put a stop to this as the eldest. But he goes halfway. He says, okay, let's don't kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit. This empty pit with no water. Why? Because it says he wants to sneak behind their backs and be the hero. He wants to control the narrative. Remember, he had committed adultery with his dad's concubine, and his dad was livid. He had lost the blessing. Here he is. He's trying to get it back. He's, he was still there as they tore Joseph's robe off. Later, in, later on, we'll see he's in on the lie that they tell his father. Um, that he'd been eaten by an animal. They all, I mean, he lets his dad grieve. They all let his dad grieve just to save their own skin. They leave their young brother in a hole in the ground with no water, thinking that they'd end up on top. Verse 25. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood. Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. Now, if their jealousy and, and the violence you know, they're committing toward their own flesh and blood wasn't bad enough, get a load of their greed. Verse 25, here are their brothers in a pit with no water, and what are they doing? They're just having a meal by the campfire. That's where their priorities are. 
They smell the spices from the caravan as it comes, you know, plodding down the road. And Judah has this brilliant idea. Man, here we, we can kill two birds with one stone. We can not have to kill him. And so we don't feel guilty about killing our own brother. And we can sell him. We can make money. Brilliant. Problem solved. 20 pieces of silver. That's the price they get for their brilliant plan. You see, we, we see this, we've seen this a lot lately. We talked about this as we were talking about our words. Behavior is downstream from what's going on in the heart. The brothers behaved terribly because their desires were bad. Rotten desires lead to rotten behavior. What did they want? What, were their, what did they desire? They wanted status. They wanted money. They wanted honor. All the things they could have had if they chose to honor and obey God. But instead, they took the road of the serpent, believing that they could find honor without God. Short-term pleasures over long-term obedience. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the long sleeve robe to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe. He said, a vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guards. All right, verse 29. Reuben is distraught because, again, how this is going to affect him. What am I going to do, he says. Like, he could have st like started chasing the caravan down the road. He could have stopped it. He didn't. He plots instead with the brothers to come up with this lie to tell dad. They know this lie is going to break his heart. They know, and they do it anyway. The cruelty on display here is, is really breathtaking. And yet, where did it start? It started with this simple desire for honor, for status, for what they believed was rightfully theirs. You know, they're so like us. Our hearts are so crooked that we don't even understand where our jealousies and our bitterness come from until they just kind of devour us. And we're just operating out of jealous rage after it's way too late. Here they are watching their, their dad mourn and weep day after day after day. And they're comforting him with what? They're comforting him with lies. And we talked about encouragement. Our God is the, the God of all comfort, the God of all encouragement. But he comforts us with the truth. They are trying to comfort their dad with lies. The once proud Jacob. There's a bit of irony here. If you remember the story where he deceives his brother Esau, remember how he did it, how he stole the blessing by putting animal skin, goat skin specifically, on his hands so his dad, who was blind, would think that he was Esau. And here we have them dipping Joseph's robe in what animal, kind of animal's blood, goat's blood. So the deceiver becomes the deceived here. 
Because of what's happening here, though, you're going to see some, some of God's purpose in all of this cruelty start to break through. Joseph, by the end of this, he gets sold by the traders to a guy called Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's top officials. Now, if you've seen that, you know the story, seen the prince of Egypt, you know where this is going. This caravan of traders is almost like it's God's personal taxi service to take Joseph from the pit to the palace. He had no idea. He had no idea. But that's so often how God works. You know, we just live life and experience things as they come to us. And yet God is working. He's bringing his good purposes to pass. Can God use good guys like Joseph? Yeah, absolutely. Can he use bad, wicked guys like Joseph's brothers? Yeah, he can use them too. God's plans cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. So as we close, let me ask you this question. If you had a choice, if you had a choice, hypothetically, would you rather be helpless, in need of saving, or would you rather be the hero who can save yourself and everyone else. If you're like me, I think, if we're honest, we don't really w- want to be helpless. We, don't, we wouldn't choose that voluntarily. No one wants to be bullied or victimized the way Joseph is here. Sometimes we want to be like Jacob. We'll settle for a little passivity, just a little, little prayerlessness, just kind of muddle through. See, if we're honest, I think we can all dream of being like Reuben. Here's a man who knows how to use his strength and his smarts to twist and control the narrative so it works out in his favor. He knows how to bend things around and to come out on top. See, that's how heroes are made in stories. That's often how heroes are made in business, in politics, in family disputes. Except in God's universe, who are the heroes? Joseph was chosen by God for nothing. His resume was a blank page. And yet God chose him. He was a kid. God sends him two dreams out of nowhere. Why? Well, we can't search the mind of God fully, but the Bible gives us some clues. See, Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob paves the way all through his life for another son. For another son who was also loved by his father. This son was also born after many years of waiting, a sign that, once again, God has not forgotten his people. This son was also misunderstood and rejected by his own family, not just a little bit. The prophet tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. And yet, when his father called him to go, to descend into the world, he went to seek to save the lost. He went without any hesitation. Eventually, this son was sold by two his executioners for 30 pieces of silver. He was thrown into a pit without water, only to reemerge three days later, not as the prince of Egypt, but as the king of kings. This is how heroes are made. 
Because you see, all who bow before this king, who follow Jesus, the king of kings, the beloved son of God, are saved. And their lives, our lives, are transformed to be a part of his great rescue mission in the world. As we wait for the ultimate celebration of God's victory, I wonder, do you know this king? Do you know Jesus, the son who was chosen for you? sold out by his own brothers for you, thrown into the pit for you, raised to victorious life for you. Every hero's journey starts with just a simple invitation to come to the end of yourself and submit to the Lord of the universe. Every man, every woman, the Bible tells us, who calls on this hero, this king, will be saved. You do not have to save yourself, not even a little bit. You don't have to control the narrative. You don't have to change your circumstances. You don't have to be satisfied with little trifling pleasures in this world when the greatest feast you could ever imagine is waiting for you. It's the most exhilarating kind of existence. Just the other side of God's open arms, stretched out to embrace you again today. See, in Christ, you're chosen. You're loved. You're clothed, not just with a beautiful robe, but with the beauty of Christ himself. And everyone who calls on him will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that it's by grace, through faith in your son, Jesus, that we are chosen that we were called, that we're saved, forgiven, adopted, transformed. It's by grace that we endure whatever we're going through right now. Lord, remind us of what you've done, of, of who you are as we come to the table. Lord, would you cause our hearts to worship again today? Cause us to remember the gospel, to remember Jesus, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out for us, all according to plan, all according to what you promised would come to pass, has come to pass. Lord, would you increase our faith in you today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.